This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. I think everybody's back. We'll go ahead and get started. Uh, we last hour finished up with Abraham, <clears throat> and so we'll we'll move on to the Mosaic covenant, uh, the covenant that God made uh, with Israel uh, through Noah in uh, at, at Mount Sinai. Now, when you when you get to the Mosaic covenant, as all y'all probably realize. You, you find yourself really at the center of much, if not most, of the debate that surrounds and uh, involves and impinges on covenant theology. Uh, there are really just scores of issues uh, that arise from the Mosaic Covenant, uh, debates that have uh, been created about the Mosaic Covenant, uh, specifically about its relationship to the covenant of grace. Uh, is it part of the covenant of grace? Is it outside of the covenant of grace? Is it part in, part out? How does the Mosaic covenant relate to the covenant of grace? Now, historically, or at least over the last um, century, a little bit less than a century or so, uh, one of the probably one of the most prominent of those debates has been the debate that has been between covenant theologians on the one hand and dispensationalists on the other hand. Uh, covenant theologians, uh, and this might be a, a loaded statement to some folks, but uh, covenant theologians traditionally have seen the Mosaic Covenant as being part of the covenant of grace, as fitting within God's redemptive work and purposes in the covenant of grace, whereas dispensationalists have seen the Mosaic Covenant as not part of the covenant of grace. Uh, essentially, the dispensationalist perspective sees the Mosaic Covenant as constituting God's economy for salvation under the Old Testament, which no longer applies in the present dispensation, uh, the church age, uh, or the church dispensation, as it might be called in dispensationalist terminology. Like I say, if you were to look over the last century, or a little bit less, that's probably the most prominent debate that has centered on the Mosaic Covenant. It's not necessarily the foremost debate today. Uh, there certainly are still many dispensationalists, but the debate between covenant theologians and dispensationalists isn't as prominent as it once was, at least not within uh, some of our sorts of circles. Today, uh, probably the most prominent debate centering upon the Mosaic Covenant is the debate that's arisen from the writings of Meredith Klein and those who hold to his view of the covenants. Now, we, we've talked about Klein before, about some of his particular views and some of the implications of them. Uh, as a quick refresher, uh, Klein and his followers, of whom uh, Mike Horton, who book, whose book you're reading, um, he might be the most familiar to you, uh, Klein and Horton and others 
uh, make a distinction between, on the one hand, law covenants, and on the other hand, promise covenants. Uh, Law covenants are covenants that involve commands being given to and imposed upon man. Uh, The covenant centers upon law. Whereas promise covenants are seen to involve only gracious, sovereign promises being made by God to man. Uh, Promise covenants are covenants entirely of promise. And the distinction between the two, promise covenants and law covenants, is within this understanding is pretty clearly made, the distinction is pretty clearly made by looking at the covenant inauguration ceremony. By looking at the ceremony in which the covenant is inaugurated and essentially seeing who swears the covenant oath. If God swears the oath, it's a promise covenant. If man swears the oath, it is a law covenant. That uh, is the general uh, division that's at the the heart, really, of Klein's uh, covenant theology and the covenant theology of those who who follow his perspective. Um, Now, in that scheme, in that setup, the Mosaic Covenant is uniformly seen as a law covenant. Uh, On the one hand, commands are very clearly involved in the Mosaic Covenant. You can't talk about Moses and not have commands and law be in the forefront of the discussion, Uh, particularly uh, in the Decalogue, uh, the Ten Commandments that you find in Exodus 20 and then again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Law is very important and very prominent in the Mosaic Covenant. But furthermore... Uh, Klein and others look specifically at the 24th chapter of Exodus, uh, the ceremony in which Israel swore to uphold uh, the commands given to them. Uh, And that chapter is taken as a clear example of the nation of Israel, i.e. mankind, swearing the covenant oath. So, since the Mosaic Covenant majors on law and commandment, and since mankind swears the covenant oath in the covenant inauguration ceremony, the Mosaic Covenant is seen as being a law covenant. In that respect, it's held up as being starkly different from the Mosaic Covenant, or excuse me, the Abrahamic Covenant that we just considered. Uh, If you look at Genesis chapter 15 specifically, which we've talked about last hour, uh, the, the Abrahamic Covenant falls in the promise covenant category. God's taking the covenant oath. He's walking the aisle of self-malediction. He is the one taking the oath, so it's a promise covenant. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant is a promise covenant, but the Mosaic covenant is a law covenant. So in this particular perspective, the Mosaic covenant as a law covenant is something other than and even exterior to the covenant of grace, uh, the covenant that had come to its, at that point, Uh, clearest manifestation in the covenant with Abraham. Uh, That tends to be uh, the, you know, in very short scope, the perspective of Klein and Horton and others. Uh, That the the Mosaic covenant is a law covenant, uh, therefore placing it um, outside of the covenant of grace for the most part. Now, you know, on the other hand, Uh, there are those who continue to argue that the Mosaic Covenant, while it is undeniably distinct within the covenant of grace, uh, as all of the covenants are, it still is part of the covenant of grace. Uh, It's distinctive within it, but it is nonetheless within it. It's part of the covenant of grace. Um, That's a quick 
thumbnail sketch of the, that particular debate that probably today, I would say, particularly in our circles, is the most prominent one and seems as if it likely will become more prominent uh, in the, the future. Now, the, the multitude of debates that arise because of the Mosaic Covenant, uh, all of the various issues that present themselves, essentially mean that we won't be able to address all of the pertinent issues individually uh, in lecture. If we were to do that, it would take more than a semester probably. Uh, rather than trying to deal with specific, what I would call, wrong views of the Mosaic Covenant, uh, we'll try to sketch out the general contours of a, in my opinion, correct view of the Mosaic Covenant. And that understanding, hopefully then, you can hold up against and use to critique and evaluate uh, other views of the Mosaic Covenant that you might confront. Um, and in a moment, we will say just a, a couple more words about Horton's view since we're reading his book in the class. Uh, but for the most part, we'll focus on a positive presentation of the Mosaic Covenant and use that as a jumping board if you have further questions uh, that we can address other things more specifically. Uh, today, in the time that remains, we're going to try to uh, fairly quickly uh, sketch out the Mosaic Covenant as it's described in the Pentateuch, and then next week uh, we'll look at the general New Testament perspective on the Mosaic Covenant. A lot of the issues pertaining to the Mosaic Covenant arise from the passages in the New Testament that reflect on it. So we'll first look at the Mosaic Covenant as it's presented in the Pentateuch, and then next we'll move on and get a, a feel for the New Testament reflection on, uh, on the Mosaic Covenant. Now, like I said, I will give, make just a, a couple more comments about Horton's view, um, kind of get uh, be, be reminded of that, that perspective. This certainly isn't a comprehensive presentation of Horton's view. If you want that, you know, the, certainly you have found that in your reading uh, in his book. Uh, but as we said, you know, Horton sees the Mosaic Covenant as being a law covenant. You have the ceremony in Exodus 24 with man swearing the oath. You have the prominence of command, especially in the Decalogue. Uh, all those general characteristics of a, a Kleinian perspective. And specifically in, in the book that you're reading, God of Promise, uh, Horton writes about the Mosaic Covenant as being sort of a, a national covenant for Israel. Uh, on the one hand, this covenant with Israel called for, in Horton's words, relative fidelity from Israel. Now, God gave all these commands, anything from the moral law to the ceremonial law. He gave the, the law in its fullness to Israel, and He required of them only relative fidelity. It didn't have to be kept perfectly by the entire nation. It didn't have to be kept perfectly by every man. Only a relative fidelity was requisite. Uh, Horton deals with that on uh, page 38, thereabouts, uh, in his book, if you want to glance back at that. There was this relative fidelity expected from the nation, and in return for that relative fidelity, the reward was the possession of the land of Canaan. Uh, this, the Mosaic Covenant was essentially setting down a, a law, a covenantal law that determined Israel's possession of the physical land. And then, therefore, after generations and generations of disobedience, uh, generations of failure to render even a relative fidelity, 
Israel was sent into exile. They were kicked out of the land for having broken and failed the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, in a sense, uh, the Mosaic Covenant is seen as a sort of, as, as a covenant almost entirely concerned with the governance of the Old Testament theocracy. Uh, Israel swore allegiance to the covenant in Exodus 24. Israel was responsible for its maintenance. And Israel then suffered the sanction of the covenant uh, when they failed to uphold it. Uh, it was governing that period of the Old Testament theocracy. And of course, Horton isn't alone in that general view, uh, the, the view of, that view of the, uh, the characteristics of the Mosaic Law in kind of a, a broad brush sort of way, that view is sometimes referred to as republication, uh, which y'all probably have heard that uh, term before. Uh, it's the idea that at Sinai, in the covenant with, with Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, uh, in that covenant, the covenant of works was in some way being republished. It was being reiterated, reconstituted, um, there's the republic the mosaic covenant is the republication of the covenant of works somewhat like you'd republish a book that had gone out of print it's being re uh, republished Repub the republication republication now within the the broad continuum of republication you have some folks who would go to the radical extreme of saying that the fullness of the covenant of works was being republished uh, that at sinai God is giving a method of salvation by obedience that was being brought from the garden and imposed on Old Testament Israel. Fully a reimposition of the covenant of works. That's one of the extremes of the republication view. Now, there are others, more like Horton, uh, who hold that almost more of a, a works principle is what's being republished at Sinai. Uh, it's not being republished with salvific implications. It's not as if God is giving Israel a different way to find salvation. Uh, that's not what's being republished. What's being republished is the works principle, uh, the principle of obedience followed by uh, reward. You have, in this case, the, uh, the relative fidelity bringing uh, continuance in the land. Uh, that's sort of a works principle. Uh, others kind of continue to move that same way on the continuum. Others would say that a works principle is being republished in a sense, but without any reference to any specific reward, whether it's salvific or otherwise. Essentially, the Mosaic Covenant is reiterating the fact that obedience is required within the covenant. It's that general principle of, uh, you could even maybe say mutuality, uh, being republished and uh, re-emphasized in the Mosaic Covenant. Basically, what I'm hopefully you're seeing is that there's a wide array of views within what can be called republication. Uh, some radically extreme, some not, some somewhere in between. Uh, the category of republication can become so broad that it almost loses most of its meaning. It includes, under its auspices, includes men who actually disagree on some pretty fundamental things. Uh, so it can at times be a deceiving label. Um, you find that even in, uh, there's a book, I think I brought it. Um, y'all have probably seen it, maybe some of you read it, or parts of it. Uh, the Law is Not of Faith, if y'all seen it. Some 
classes, I think one of the hermeneutics classes here use it, um, which is uh, pretty self-consciously a collection of essays forwarding a republication sort of view. But within it, you have a wide range of men within republication, what would be considered republication. So you can't, um, you have to be careful to make distinctions within the view of republication. Uh, some men run to extremes, some don't, some land somewhere in the middle. Um, I think if, if nothing else, it all highlights the scope of disagreement on the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, even amongst those who agree in some way, you know, they agree enough to be published in the same book, there still is a fair bit of pretty serious variety. Um, it, uh, it's a, a contentious issue that even now is still being uh, worked out and addressed amongst uh, the Reformed community, so to speak. Uh, but anyway, all, you know, all, all of these views, generally speaking, republication um, makes us realize the need to clarify uh, a right understanding of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, and it, as I'm sure all y'all would agree, if you want a right view of the Mosaic Covenant, I'm the one to ask. You'll have come to the, the right place. You weren't supposed to laugh. You're supposed to say amen. But... Um, what is the right view of the Mosaic Covenant? What, 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 how is the Mosaic Covenant described in the Scriptures? Well, first of all, we need to realize where in the Scriptures we find the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, what, you know, what, what do we mean by the Mosaic Covenant? Now, to find the Mosaic Covenant in Scripture, you essentially have to start in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19 is when Israel arrives at the base of Mount Sinai, uh, Moses' interaction with God on the mountain begins. It's kind of the, the start of the, uh, the disclosure of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, of course, when you get into Exodus chapter 20, you get the description of the distinctive law of that covenant. Uh, you get the Decalogue in Exodus chapter 20, but then up through the end of chapter 23, you have more detail given, more of the, the covenantal law that's being given. And really, you know, while it's concentrated in some ways, at least in its initial giving in Exodus 20 through 23, really throughout of the rest of the Mosaic books, you get the fullness of the Mosaic Covenant. You have laws and regulations throughout the rest of Exodus through Leviticus and Numbers. You have all of it largely recapitulated in Deuteronomy. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant, in a, an expansive sense, uh, encompasses all of this material, all of, these, uh, all of the law that's given that becomes so distinctive to the covenant. But at the very least, it seems to me, to, to understand the Mosaic Covenant, you need to understand and focus upon Exodus chapters 19 uh, through 20, probably 24, uh, with a, a special emphasis on chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, where you get uh, the Decalogue. And when you come to this Mosaic Covenant, when you try to bury your attention down on Exodus 19 through 24, probably the, the fundamental thing that we have to keep in mind, especially in light of the, some of the other views of the covenant that are out there, the fundamental thing that we need to keep in mind is that the Mosaic Covenant is in complete organic continuity with the covenant of grace. Uh, the covenant of grace had had its most recent revelation in the Abrahamic Covenant, 
And when you get to the Mosaic Covenant, you find that covenant being in complete and organic continuity with it. Now, you get that continuity in a number of different ways, and we'll just address three of them uh, to give you the, the broad scope of it. First of all, the covenant of grace, the covenant that had most recently been revealed in the Abrahamic Covenant, that covenant has very clearly precipitated the Mosaic Covenant. Now, probably the clearest and the most succinct place that you see that is in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. The, the, the covenant of grace, as it was in the Abrahamic covenant, has precipitated the Mosaic covenant. Is that what you mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, at that point the Israelites are still in Egypt. They've been suffering under oppressive bondage for centuries. Moses already has fled to Midian after having killed the Egyptian. Uh, And then, as if things weren't bad enough for the Israelites, they get even worse. Uh, In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, the Scriptures tell us this. It says, Now what happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. At this point, the, the Israelites are crushed under the heel of Egyptian slavery, and finally... They cry out to God for deliverance. And God hears them. It says very clearly in the passage. And it also says why God hears them. He hears them because of His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, the Verses 23 through 25 there, I think, make it justified to say that had it not been for God's covenant with Abraham, uh, the Israelites would have been suffocated and exterminated under the chains of Egyptian slavery. But instead, because of the covenant with Abraham, God appears to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, and then all of the Exodus, from the the crippling of Egypt by the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the drowning of Pharaoh's army, the manna from heaven, the water from the rock, all of the Exodus, uh, all of the, the glories of the Exodus unfold from this point. Now, to put it simply, it, it it's very clear when you get to Exodus 19, when Israel is standing at the base of Mount Sinai, it's very clear that they are at Mount Sinai to receive the law, to receive the Mosaic Covenant, instead of languishing in Egyptian slavery, purely and only because of God's covenant of grace, uh, the covenant that had been expressed in the covenant to Abraham. Uh, that's the covenant that has won their redemption. Uh, the, the, the covenant of grace very clearly has precipitated the Mosaic Covenant. But not only has the Abrahamic Covenant precipitated the Mosaic Covenant, but the Covenant of Grace, as it has been uh, revealed in the Exodus, this outworking of God's promise to Abraham, uh, the Covenant of Grace also drives the Mosaic Covenant. And again, you you can say that, you can find that a number of different places, but since we're trying to you know, limit ourselves here in Exodus, if you look in Exodus chapter 19, 
particularly at verses 4 and 5. Now, at this point, Israel has arrived in Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up on top of the mountain in 19 verse 3. Uh, the, The full theophany that you get later isn't there yet, evidently, but God, in some sense, is on the mountain. Uh, Moses has gone up there to God, and God is giving Moses words that he then is to speak to the Israelites. And you get this in verse 4. Verse 4, these are the words that God is giving to Moses to then give to the Israelites. And God says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, in that one verse, God essentially brings to mind everything that He had done to deliver Israel and bring them to that point. He refers to, He says, what I did to the Egyptians. And that that simple phrase, He encapsulates everything from the ten plagues to the spoiling of the Egyptians, the Red Sea, the uh, deliverance through the wilderness. God, very succinctly there, brings to mind everything uh, that He's done uh, to the Egyptians. Well, I guess really just up, up through the Red Sea. Uh, he's talking about the Egyptians. Then he also mentions that he bore you on eagles' wings, uh, referring to the Israelites there, obviously. You know, there, God is using imagery uh, from the animal world to speak of how he has trained and taught and instructed the Israelites as they've been traveling through the wilderness. He's been teaching them how to trust him. He's been teaching them how to live by faith. Uh, to look to Him for their provision uh, rather than to themselves. God has been teaching them uh, as an eagle teaches its young to fly. Uh, then He also refers to how He has brought you to Myself in verse 4. Uh, he's brought them all the way there to Mount Sinai. He's brought them into uh, His presence even. Uh, he's on the mountain, there at the base of the mountain. Uh, God has brought them to Himself, particularly when you consider that back in Exodus chapter 3, God had promised Moses that he would bring him and the people back to the place where he was then at the burning bush, which was also Mount Sinai. Uh, God has fulfilled his promise uh, to bring Moses and the Israelites back to himself, back to this place at which he had appeared to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. So in pretty short scope there in verse 4 of Exodus chapter 19, God is conjuring up all of the mighty acts by which he had delivered Israel. The mighty acts that, as we saw in Exodus chapter 2, mighty acts that have been precipitated by the covenant of grace. God's bringing all of them to mind, and then he moves into verse 5, Exodus 19, verse 5. God's reminded Israel of their tangible benefit that they've enjoyed from the Abrahamic covenant, and then he says in verse 5 and into verse 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now in verse 4, as we saw, God had recapitulated Israel's clear benefit from the Abrahamic covenant. And then in verse 5, the verse had begun with, Now therefore... Uh, the, in the, the Hebrew, uh, the, it, the word in the Hebrew is, is va'atah. It's a, a phrase that speaks of drawing a conclusion, uh, most often a practical conclusion, drawing a practical conclusion from what has just been stated. 
So God has just stated that Israel clearly is benefiting from the Abrahamic covenant. They're part of that covenant. Therefore, as the practical conclusion, they are to do what he says to do, which we'll see what that is. Um, Israel has enjoyed the benefit of the Abrahamic covenant, and therefore, according to verse 5, they are to obey God's voice. Now, given that God is about to thunder the Decalogue from Sinai's heights, given that he's about to speak all of the law to Moses, who will then communicate it to Israel, it's very clear what God has in mind when he says for them to listen to his voice. Essentially, because they have benefited from the Abrahamic covenant, because they're clearly in that covenant, uh, partaking of its blessings, because of that, they are to render obedience to the Mosaic law. Now, we need there to kind of bear in mind the obvious that you know, throughout the Scriptures, the law, uh, particularly the Decalogue, uh, is seen as being synonymous with the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, very frequently, the Scriptures will refer to the Decalogue as the words of the covenant. Uh, and to a very large degree, the Decalogue is seen, is seen as being the covenant, and the covenant is seen as being the Decalogue. So the obedience to the Decalogue that God is enjoining here is uh, central to the entire Mosaic Covenant. Essentially, he is not just pressing the, the Decalogue as an independent entity on them, but he's pressing the entirety of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, the, the, the Abrahamic Covenant um, and the, the, the Israelites' enjoyment of it and their participation in its blessings so clearly evidenced by their being brought to Mount Sinai, that covenant of grace is driving the Mosaic Covenant. It's because of the Abrahamic Covenant that they are to listen to God's voice in the law. In other words, it's because of uh, their benefit under the Abrahamic Covenant that they are to uh, submit to the Mosaic Covenant. Now, when Israel does this, uh, when they render obedience to the law, God says there that there'll be a special treasure to him. Uh, there'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And we'll come back to that, that in just a second. But, but for the time being, it's clear that whatever comes from Israel's obedience or disobedience to the Mosaic law, you know, whatever results from their obedience or disobedience, their compulsion to obey that law comes from the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, they're not being uh, enticed to render obedience because of some sort of new covenantal arrangement. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant is their enticement and their compulsion to obey the law. You stand here because of the Abrahamic covenant, therefore hear my voice and obey the law. Uh, that's the, the, the thrust of what God is telling them. Uh, the, the Abrahamic covenant that has precipitated the Mosaic covenant also is driving the covenant. Uh, God's unbroken, eternal purpose in the covenant of grace is still the operative force and the compulsion at Sinai. So, the Abrahamic covenant, as we've seen, is both precipitating and driving the Mosaic covenant. And you get both of those kind of pulled together and distilled alongside each other in what is traditionally known as the preface to the Ten Commandments. 
Uh, you get it both in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, and then again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. Um, I'll read it as, as it appears here in Exodus. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. They're continuing into verse 3 to, see, to show you how the, you know, the preface comes, and then God immediately uh, sets into the first commandment and moves through uh, the, all ten of the commandments. In that preface to the Ten Commandments, it very clearly is the fact that the Lord is Israel's God, uh, that He's brought them out of slavery, out of the house of bondage. Uh, it's that that has both led to the Decalogue and that then enjoys, enjoins obedience to the Decalogue as well. It's because the Lord is their God, because He has delivered them, a deliverance that clearly has come because of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, those are the things uh, that have... Uh, brought them to Mount Sinai to receive the law and that then are pressing the law upon them. Um, in every possible sense, it seems to me, uh, the Mosaic Covenant stands upon the prior foundation of the Abrahamic Covenant. Without that previous prior covenant, uh, without the, uh, the particulars of it, the promises of it, the relationship that it had created between God and the descendants of Abraham, uh, without that previous covenant, the Mosaic Covenant really makes no sense. Uh, it's, it's working on categories uh, that are the creation of the Abrahamic Covenant. Uh, the promises to Abraham, the uh, creation of his seed, those sorts of things. Uh, it's because of the Abrahamic Covenant that Israel receives the law, and it's because of the Abrahamic Covenant that Israel is to obey the law. So the Abrahamic Covenant it seems pretty clearly, is both precipitating the Mosaic Covenant and driving the Mosaic Covenant. Any questions at that point before we keep going? That was the second. It precipitates and it drives. You're on the edge of your seat for the third one. Any other questions? Oh, well, the, so the Abrahamic Covenant, it precipitates the Mosaic Covenant, it drives the Mosaic Covenant, and finally... Uh, the covenant of grace, as it was most recently embodied in the covenant with Abraham, uh, we see that that covenant of grace receives further clarification in the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant isn't a departure from the covenant of grace. It's not a departure from what God was doing with Abraham, but rather it's a clarification of what God had been doing. And you see that even in what appears to be the clearest example of departure in the Mosaic Covenant, namely in the law. Now, whenever people pit the Mosaic Covenant against the covenant of grace, it's always the law that's seen as placing the Mosaic Covenant outside of the covenant of grace. However, the law is really nothing other than a development of principles uh, that already were present in the covenant of grace. Uh, throughout the covenant of grace, we've seen time and again the presence of commands. I've tried to somewhat highlight these as we've been going along. Uh, we, with Noah, we notice how Noah had to build the ark prior to the flood. He had responsibilities after the flood. Uh, there were dietary laws. There was capital punishment upon murder. Um, command had a definite place in the Mosaic Covenant. 
Uh, the same was true with Abraham. Abraham had to leave his life behind in Genesis 12. In Genesis 17, he was commanded to render obedience to God in general and in particular to implement circumcision. Uh, you know, so in, in both of the, the main economies of the covenant of grace that we've seen so far, there have been commands. And in both instances, disobedience to those commands has brought severe punishment. Uh, there's the death penalty for murder with Noah. Uh, there's the uh, punishment for lack of circumcision under Abraham, uh, seen so clearly uh, with the episode with Gershom that we mentioned last hour. Uh, very clearly, there has been command throughout God's covenant dealings. But furthermore, law and command uh, have not only been evident within the specifics of God's covenant relationship, but law and command have also been very clear in the world at large. Uh, for instance, just you know, as one example, in Genesis 11, we'd seen the Tower of Babel. Uh, the men there at uh, the Tower of Babel had very clearly transgressed some sort of law. On the one hand, we mentioned how they uh, had been commanded to spread out and fill the earth, and instead of filling the earth, they were congregating in one area. Uh, so they were breaking that command, but they also you know, were held culpable for building a tower to heaven. Uh, they were, essentially, they were held culpable for things that had not been specifically forbidden them in the words of the Scriptures. Um, there clearly has been law and command throughout society. Uh, but in particular, uh, there's, as you, see, as you see even in Babel, uh, there has been the abiding validity of the creation ordinances. Uh, the creation ordinances that God had given at the creation that he had reiterated in Genesis chapter 3, uh, this law and command has been binding on mankind uh, throughout history. Um, it's particularly interesting in light of the particulars of the Decalogue. It's particularly interesting to notice uh, the continuing validity of the Sabbath ordinance, uh, one of the creation ordinances. Now we know, obviously, that we get the Sabbath described in the fourth commandment. Uh, you find it there in Exodus chapter 20. But in Exodus chapter 16, prior to the giving of the law, uh, when God is giving instructions for the gathering of the manna, there are extensive regulations for Sabbath observance. Uh, very clearly there, even prior to Sinai, there is law, there's command that's operative in God's relationship, not only with humanity generally, but with His covenant people. Essentially, you, you really can't read any portion of Scripture from Genesis 3 up through Exodus 19 without it being evident to you that there is divine law, there's divine command and obedience to that law and to that command uh, is imperative. Um, what you then get in the law when it's given on Sinai is not the creation of some new entity that's never before been seen, this radically new idea of law and command, but rather in the law you find the, the, the clearest really revelation, the clearest distillation of this law and command that always has been present. Uh, in some cases, you have the uh, codification of things that we know already were extant. In the case of the Sabbath, for instance, uh, with the fourth commandment, um, in some cases, it's not necessarily things that have been clearly revealed before. Um, but the 
in each case, what God is doing in the law is consistent with it, what he had previously been doing in and through the covenant of grace. Uh, he always has given command. He always has given law. Uh, this is simply a, uh, a clarification of it. And in that sense, in the sense you know, when you realize that the law is a clarification of something that had always existed, uh, you realize that this giving of the law is not only continuous with God's work in the covenant of grace, but it's also a gracious uh, progress, you could say. Um, it's not some sort of burden, but rather it's a gracious gift. Uh, you, certainly we all know um, how frustrating it can be to be held to expectations that haven't been made clear to you. People put expectations on you, and you don't know what the expectations are, and then you're held accountable when you fail to do something you didn't realize you are supposed to do in the first place. Um, here in the law, God is obviating that ever occurring. He is revealing his expectation, so to speak. He's revealing his holy standards to his people. He's making clear what always has existed. Um, even in what appears to be uh, the greatest departure within the Mosaic Covenant, uh, the greatest departure from the covenant of grace, even in this law, we see that actually God is bringing greater clarity, He's bringing gracious clarity even, to something that has been present throughout the covenant of grace to date. Uh, command is part and parcel of God's covenantal relationship with His people, and in the Mosaic covenant, this integral component simply receives greater clarification, it receives uh, codification, systemization, however you want to put it, um, God is bringing greater clarity to something that always has existed. And he does that for certain purposes, which we'll, which we'll get to. Um, so, prior to the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant of grace has been most clearly seen in the Abrahamic Covenant. And when you get to the Mosaic Covenant, uh, you find that the Abrahamic Covenant is precipitating the covenant, it's driving the covenant, and it's receiving greater clarification within the covenant. It seems, in light of those lines of thought and biblical evidence, it seems really almost an understatement to say that the Mosaic Covenant is in marked continuity with the Covenant of Grace. You know, certainly there are differences, uh, there are differences of emphasis, etc., but in order for clarification to occur, there has to be a difference of emphasis. If there weren't any differences from one covenantal administration to the next, then God's covenantal purpose would be static. It would never receive any uh, development, never receive any greater clarification. It would always be the same. Uh, the, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant are different, but they are in continuity. Uh, you can't understand one without the other. Uh, both of them are part of the covenant of grace. Any questions on that so far? Before I keep... And yeah, if, 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 there was no, uh, if there were no differences, then there would be no development, no clarification. God's covenantal purpose would be static. His covenant of grace is unchanging and eternal, but his revelation of it in the, these specific covenants changes. It develops. Anything else? All right, well, now the 
Certainly, the um, hopefully you are, get the sense of how the uh, the Mosaic Covenant is in continuity with the Abrahamic Covenant that precedes it. But it's the relationship is not only one of continuity. Uh, there also is development, as we were just saying. Um, the Mosaic Covenant essentially moves the covenant of grace forward. It uh, brings it to greater uh, development. And it moves the covenant forward. It shows advancement in at least two ways. You could give a lot more than two, but we'll just look at two. Uh, two ways in which the Mosaic Covenant advances the covenant of grace. First of all, the Mosaic Covenant advances the covenant of grace by moving forward or advancing the three covenant promises that were made to Abraham. Uh, it brings each of these Abrahamic promises to greater fulfillment. Now you remember from Genesis 12 that the three promises to Abraham were that he would be given a seed, he'd be given a land, and he would be made a blessing to all the nations. Well, each of these promises uh, is developed and brought to greater fulfillment in the Mosaic Covenant. First of all, you have the promise of a seed. Um, in a certain sense, at Mount Sinai, what had been a very large, very extended family is turned into a nation. Uh, they're no longer the descendants of Abraham. They are the nation of Israel. Now, certainly their, their size, for a good little while, their size had made the notion of a family a little bit outdated, perhaps. But from this point forward, even their organization uh, reflects that change from a family to a nation. Now, if you've read Robertson on the Mosaic Covenant, he, he deals with that a, a decent little bit in his book. <clears throat> so we won't you know, dwell on it in any detail, but um, in a sense, at Mount Sinai, the promise to Abraham of a seed develops from a family into a nation as sort of a midway point on its movement to a worldwide church. You, you can see a, a development of the promise of a seed. No longer is it just one child, no longer is it even one family, it's now a nation and it's heading toward being a, an international church. So you have the, a development of the promise of a, of a seed. You also have an advancement of the promise of a land. Uh, greater clarity is being brought to that promise as well. Uh, the law that's given in the Mosaic Covenant, um, everything from the moral imperatives of the Decalogue all the way down to the ceremonial regulations, all of the law that's given is preparing Israel for dwelling in the land. Now, sometimes that connection, the connection between <clears throat> the connection between the Mosaic law and life in the land, sometimes it's made very explicit. It's made quite explicit in the fifth commandment, for instance. Uh, the fifth commandment promises that obedience to the commandment will bring long life and prosperity in the land that God was giving to His people. There's a, a clear connection between uh, the law that's given and the possession of the land, uh, the Mosaic Covenant and the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant. Now, of course, when we think about the land, uh, we need to remember what we saw a couple of lectures ago, I suppose, uh, out of Ephesians chapter 6. If you remember Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3, uh, Paul had made very clear 
that the land that was in view in the fifth commandment wasn't the physical land of Canaan, it was the heavenly land of heaven itself. Um, now that's not a, an insignificant point, uh, particularly in light of some of the current discussion surrounding the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, in Ephesians 6, Paul shows that the, the land to which the Decalogue looked, uh, the land whose possession and enjoyment is connected to the Decalogue, uh, that that land is heaven itself. So when you have, uh, for instance, Horton uh, saying that the Decalogue is essentially a set of stipulations meant to govern the theocracy and set conditions upon Israel's possession of a piece of real estate, uh, it's important to remember that the Decalogue was looking forward to the heavenly reality, not to the earthly type. Um, that even that the, the understanding of the land uh, is much more spiritualized, and much more, um, looks much more to the reality than just to the earthly type. Now certainly there is the connection between uh, the law and the land, the connection between the Mosaic Covenant and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises, uh, but there's a the, the focus seems to be on the a larger fulfillment than just uh, some square miles of territory. Uh, the The Decalogue is concerned not with the earthly possession, uh, but with the heavenly, ultimately. Um, but might be a digression. Uh, the the point The point for now is that the the law spoke to Israel's possession of the land, uh, ultimately the heavenly land, but in typological form. Uh, their possession of the earthly type. Um, does anybody have any questions at this point? Uh, the, the next thing that we'll address is uh, lengthier than we have time to do right now, so um, we'll hold there. We'll, when we come back next week, we'll look at how uh, the Mosaic Covenant brings greater development and advancement to the promise that Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to all the nations. I don't want to get in the middle of it and leave you hanging for a week. You might not be able to go to sleep. Is there no other questions before we dismiss? All right. Well, thank you all for your attention. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.